Artists often go to extremes for their art, and Phil Tippett is no exception. Not unlike Captain Ahab and Moby Dick, you know, and I went down with the whale, ended up for a, a few days in a psych ward, and then recovery for about six weeks. The stop-motion effects wizard talks about the 30-year journey to bring Mad God to the screen. Welcome back to listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. I'm Beth Accomando. Phil Tippett has worked on such blockbusters as Star Wars and Jurassic Park. But to him, those films were just his day job, while he spent his spare time developing personal projects that he says were just too weird for Hollywood. The result of his painstaking labors is Mad God, a bleak and beautiful descent into hell. On today's bonus podcast, I speak with Tippett, as well as with poet Saul Williams and Rwandan filmmaker Anisia Uziman, who created the Afrofuturist musical Neptune Frost. All three are bold visionaries pushing film in exciting new directions. Cinema Junkie is officially still on season break, and we'll be back soon with regular episodes. But I wanted to do this bonus podcast because current top-grossing Hollywood fare has just seemed so dull and formulaic. Jurassic World Dominion, Top Gun Maverick, and The Lost City are so predictably paint-by-numbers that you know exactly how it will all play out before the opening credits have even finished. But there is absolutely nothing predictable about Mad God and Neptune Frost, and I want to celebrate that. First up is Phil Tippett. For an Oscar-winning special effects artist who was working on Jurassic Park as stop-motion animation was giving way to computer-generated effects, he's a decidedly non-tech-savvy person who took about 10 minutes to log into the Zoom session. I point this out with nothing but empathy. He also looks like a mad Santa and comes across like that curmudgeonly relative who's annoyed to be at the Christmas party. I was worried that if I asked a bad question, he might just get up and walk away. But he put up with me and my questions and offered candid insights into his creative process. Tippett is a genius at what he does, and Mad God is an epic display of that talent. The film's a wordless descent into hell, but on a certain level, there are no words to describe it because it invents a new category all its own. It's a fever dream that combines madness, chaos, despair, and beauty. Every frame is dense with detail, revealing the influence of Dutch painters Hieronymus Bosch and Pieter Bruegel. The end result is something bleak and dark, but also gorgeously seductive in its meticulous craftsmanship. Tippett is probably best known for his stop-motion animation of such things as the Adats in The Empire Strikes Back and Ed 209 in Robocop. If you're unfamiliar with stop-motion animation, it requires physically manipulating objects in painstakingly tiny increments between individually photographed frames. I began my interview by asking him what the first stop-motion animation film he saw was. His answer was the classic 1933 King Kong with work by Willis O'Brien. We're millionaires, boys! I'll share it with all of you! Why, in a few months, we'll be up in lights on Broadway! Kong! I was five years old, 1956, and I saw it on a TV. Yeah, it sparked a, uh, my interest in dinosaurs, but that was the very first thing I'd seen. So how did you end up getting into stop motion? Was that something, did that spark the interest right there? 
I had no idea what it was. And then in 1958, I saw Ray Harryhausen's Seven Sinbad. This is Dynamation. Dynamation will be brought to the screen for the first time in color with the release of Columbia Pictures' The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. Dynamation is a new process which utilizes new technical and scientific advances in electronics and color to open up vast new vistas in motion picture entertainment. That clicked and, you know, I was really enamored by the spectacle of it all. I had no idea how it was done. And it wasn't until years later when Forrest J. Ackerman, the editor of Famous Monsters of Filmland, who was a film uh, friend of Ray's, published some articles I, I began to understand. And then I saved up money mowing lawns and bought a stop motion camera and just started. And what is it about stop motion that you love? What is it about that process? As Ray called it, it's a very surreal kind of a process and that what you get kind of defies what you're seeing. You know, it's a, a model that you're moving one frame at a time and it has a particular kind of movement that I find compelling. When I was 12, I just started messing around. You know, I stole the G.I. Joe you know, and got clay. And, you know, I was sculpting at that time, learning how to sculpt and would shoot eight millimeter film. And uh, it took me months to shoot a roll and send it to Rochester, New York, and I get it back in two weeks and look at it. And I equivocated to like attempting to learn to play the piano without hearing it for two weeks or three months, really, and then trying to figure it out. So it was a very precipitous learning curve. And what do you think it is about stop motion that does make it so magical? It really is so engaging. It's just compelling to look at. And I think the vibe of uh, hand craftsmanship is evident in it. So what inspired you to make Mad God? What inspired that story, that particular story you wanted to tell? Well, I had always imagined making my own movies and set on a path very early on to build a studio and accumulate lights and cameras and whatnot. And the, uh, when digital photography came in, it uh, really made things significantly simpler. I really hated working with film. What inspired it, you know, were, was, was a list so long, I, I can only kind of graze a few of them when I was probably around 10 or 12, my dad, who was a, a abstract expressionist painter, had a collection of books and he showed me, he knew I was into monsters and showed me Aronimus Bosch and Peter Bruegel. And so that was cooking in there. And then in the mid to late sixties, you know, when I was around, Bob Dylan um, started doing his more kind of surreal poetic work and uh, that went into the pot and um, boy the Czech filmmaker Carl Zeman you know was a huge influence of course Ray Harryhausen and Wallace O'Brien in the late 80s I shot uh, about three minutes 35 millimeter film and the scope was too big and it, I uh, put it on ice and then when I was archiving it some guys in my studio who had seen all the making of Star Wars and RoboCop documentaries, saw me archiving it and 
volunteered to do a, sh a couple of shots and uh, it just took off from there. I just got a lot of other volunteers where I would give you know talks around the Bay Area. And people would volunteer, some students and aficionados of, of stop motion would offer to, to come in and you know, I mentored them. They turned into really good, terrific stop motion animators and went on to start their own companies. And then uh, I would uh, solicit the help of college and high school students that, that volunteered. And, you know, I, I created a small army that allowed me to make it. And so we started in earnest in around 2010 and then worked on it for the next 12 years or so until completion. And what inspired the particular themes that you wanted to deal with? Well, it was everything. <laughs> You know, you know, paleontology, archaeology, psychology, particularly Carl Jung, Dante, Milton, the works. Because it's a pretty dark vision of things. Yeah. Well, we live in a dark world, don't we? But I have to say it's a darkness that is amazingly beautiful, too. Yeah, well, that was certainly my objective. There were, there were really two objectives. Most of what I do is... Um, but I wanted to be similar to Hieronymus Bosch that was both horrible and musical at the same time. And then I also, you know, would study my dreams. I, I was at that time dreaming prolifically during that 12-year period. You know, would study my dreams and the narrative structure in the dreams. There was a narrative structure in there, and uh, but it was not typical. I, it actually was kind of a three-act thing. You know, the beginning of the dream posed the question. The middle of it was kind of murky, you know, as though, you know, a mind is processing something. And in the end, there, there's some kind of resolution to it. There is an end most of the time. So, uh, you know, one of my few intentions was to create the experience, the illusion of, of a dream wherein you pack so much information into a, say, a four-second shot that by the time, you know, it's impossible to absorb all that information, but you, you follow the narrative such as it is. And then when the next shot comes up, the previous one evaporates, you know, because now there's so much more uh, to behold. And, um, you know, I just went on from the next, the next, the next. Well, yeah, I saw it at the virtual screening that they had for Beyond Fest, and I was just dying to see it on a big screen because it seemed like every frame was so rich and packed with detail. What was it like creating that? Were you just, did you know like how crowded you wanted some of those frames to be from the start, or did you just kind of keep adding to it? Again, you know, it was all intuitive and driven by the unconscious. You know, I just... Uh... Pablo Picasso was interviewed and he was asked what he was looking for in his paintings. And he did, he said, I do not seek, I find. And Bach, Beethoven and Mozart would say, well, I, I just transcribed, you know, and God told me what to do. So it was very much a process like that, like many artists. I was not interested at all in anything that was polemical, political, whatever. Although when you're doing this stuff, you kind of, don't know what you're doing. And then in retrospect, you kind of realize, oh, in fact, just the other day, I was reading in the New Yorker an article on Carlo Collodi, who wrote Pinocchio, the original Pinocchio. 
And I realized, wow, that, that was a huge influence. I read that you know, quite a few times when I was around the time I was thinking of Mad God, but then you know, didn't, it wasn't on my radar that it was actually an influence. And you seem to have a little bit of fun with it, too. I noticed at least one Ed 209, and I don't know what other Easter eggs or fun things you may have added in in the background. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff sprinkled in there. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing it on the big screen. Yeah, that's how it was made, built. Now, you had a Kickstarter for this at one point. What was that like, and is that... Is raising your own money, does that give you more freedom or does it just create like a whole new set of kind of complications and challenges? Well, the Kickstarters were uh, really essential to, get, to kickstart the movie. The first one I asked for $60,000 and got the 120, next one $60,000. You know, I barely cleared $60,000. The next one I asked for $40,000 and barely got that. A friend had to, had to donate the last $6,000. And it was just too difficult to manage that stuff. I mean, fortunately, I didn't have to do it because I had a studio. And people assisted, not assisted me. They set it up for me. But, yeah, but then to finish up, then I have a lot of props, you know, from the movies that I've made. And I auctioned those off. And then... I have a wealthy friend that donated some money to me quite a, quite a bit so I could finish the film. So I just pieced it together. And you worked with some of your Tippett Studio employees doing this. And was this the first time that some of them got to do stop motion animation? And kind of what was their response like to working in that? Yeah, when you know I was archiving it, they saw, you know, looked over my shoulder and saw what I was doing. And, you know, they didn't know what it was. They thought it was some old lost Czechoslovakian movie. And uh, I told them it was a project that I was put in bed because I, you know, it was a, you know, a failed thing that I couldn't, you know, continue on. And they had watched the documentaries on, you know, Star Wars and Robocop and whatnot and uh, volunteered because that's what they all had always wanted to do. And now they had an opportunity. And since this film took a long time to complete, did you feel that anything changed radically for the better or the worse or just different in that time frame? Well, eventually, like many artists, I just became completely absorbed in it. And actually I diagnosed myself and was substantiated, substantiated by a psychiatrist. I have I am unipol. I have a version of bipolar that where I don't get depressed unless it's um, there's something really depressing, but it's my superpower and I just can't stop. I mean, it kind of gets in my way sometimes and I'm very obsessive. Once, you know, when we started, I thought it might be a 20 minute film, then 40 minute film, then I thought, what the hell, why don't we go for trying to make a feature out of it? And there was no end to the imagery. And um, the editor on the film, Ken Rogerson, located a uh, very early mashup of what we had with the very few shots, not much more than you know six or eight shots cut in with the storyboards. And it was all there. 
I mean, even some of the drawings were just identical to the shots that we did. You know, I'd totally forgotten that, that we had done that. Of course, it wasn't the entire narrative, but it was the more than the bones. It was it was bones with some sinew on it, and that was kind of surprising to look back on. Thirty years ago or so, I wrote about twelve or fifteen pages that was basically a tone for it, and that stayed there. A number of the scenes were in there uh, in one version or another. You were working on Jurassic Park at a time when kind of stop motion animation was being replaced by CGI. What did that feel like? And do you feel that stop motion has managed to kind of maintain a place in terms of filmmaking that has surprised you? Or did you, because you felt pretty grim about it at one point. You know, when the digital revolution hit, stop motion was no longer a viable, you know, technique to use so it, it kind of evaporated from the stage and you know um it alive with tim burton henry Selleck, and now uh, guillermo del toro is doing pinocchio so there was a big dip in interest for it and then gradually over the years people started to get sick of computer graphics and then it started a slow climb into a resurgence where it, it kind of lurks today is there any part of Mad God that you feel particularly satisfied with or proud of because of how difficult it was or just getting that vision on the screen that satisfied you? No. Um, sometimes I would have three or four setups going at the same time uh, and not, not going, but, you know, I'd, I'd work on one a little bit or if I had two or three animators in, say like on the weekends or after work, I would have multiple setups going. And I, I have some great, some of the, you know, world-class stop motion guys working at my studio, Chuck Duke and Tom Gibbons. And they are, they're far better animators than I am. They're very precise. And I'm, you know, they use the frame grabbers and all the, the techniques, but I just tend to kind of go for it. They plot everything out very carefully. And I am more intuitive and just kind of riff in some ways where if I get, you know, 6, 12, 18, 24 frames into a shot, you know, and get another idea, I'll just go for that. I have to say that after seeing Mad God and seeing that kind of dark vision that you had, I'm just curious, you also work on big Hollywood mainstream films, but do you feel that there's kind of... I mean, are, do you always feel like you're kind of in butting heads with that or, or you know, like... No, it's my day job. And I was really lucky, really, to be mentored by Lucas and Spielberg and Paul Verhoeven. And certainly Paul was the biggest influence on me because we have very similar worldviews and approaches to cinema. What do you think a person needs to be a good stop-motion animator? Patience. Uh, you know, on Empire Strikes Back, I didn't feel that I was at the level that I needed to be. And Dennis Nieren uh, located one of the first reel-to-reel -reel, uh, stop-motion tape recorders. So uh, while I was doing my other tasks in pre-production, which we had you know, a good amount of time, like maybe eight months or close to a year to prepare, I would 
just go in and practice with the uh, you know, mock-ups of the snow walkers and tauntaun and you know until i get get my whatever it is the kind of urban myth of 10,000 hours and then it's like you know riding a bicycle or a skateboard you know you go I know that's no good that's no good that's no good that's no good and then bang it clicks and you get it and Ray Harryhausen was asked I was with him uh, on stage and he was asked if he didn't find stop motion tedious he said no no, not at all. And he asked me if I did. He was like, no. But uh, to mere mortals, it's like watching grass grow. Do you have an idea for another film after this? Or do you need to recuperate a bit? Well, I certainly needed to recuperate after Matt got. I ended up hating it. You know, um, it's not unusual. You know, I just had to get behind the mule and do it and force myself to do it. But that was my manic state, you know, uh, not unlike Captain Ahab and Moby Dick, you know, and I went down with the whale and ended up for a, a few days in a psych ward and then recovery for about six weeks until I built myself back up. So it was really a uh, religious journey. It was otherworldly. I was guided by other spirits. And, you know, like Mozart would say, I Bach, you know, I just did what I was told. So how do you feel about the film now? Uh, well, I'm glad to be finished with it. But for me, it's never finished. I, I had to be kicked off of it by, I was the producer on it. But then when it came to, you know, marketing and get the film out there, the producers that were in charge of that just kicked me off it. I was really lucky to get two guys that were absolutely integral to the movie. Dan Wolf, who did the score, and Richard Beggs, who goes back to Apocalypse Nowadays, Academy Award winning guy. I can't believe he stuck with it for like, he came on in like, you know, the last six or eight years when we started the first Kickstarter or, at, or immediately afterwards. And, you know, I'm not a micromanager and, you know, I would go in and, and spot things with them and might have a couple of, of like maybe half a dozen notes. And then it was just, you know, I'll leave it to the, you know, master chefs to do it and just leave them alone. Sometimes they take my, you know, suggestions and sometimes they wouldn't and sometimes they turn them into other things. So my process with Dan was, um, he uh, was a, a admirer of Sergio Leone and Dan can write for anything. And so, you know, I only knew that he did these kind of Marconi-esque things. And then I showed him an, a little eight millimeter high video. It, it was kind of all over the place and the sound effects were like ambient sound effects that I picked up with my kids and like dialing a radio back and forth. And I had no idea that Dan had been involved with, um, you know, uh, creating sound environments for, um, you know, various dance companies and was very much into his own ambient music. And it was like, it was like a marriage made in heaven. So I showed him the first three minutes uh, that I had shot years earlier. And uh, at that time, 
a friend, Klaus Floride, who's the bass player in the Dead Kennedys, had done mocked up something years earlier. I mean, maybe like 15, 20 years ago. And uh, it was just like two on the nose. And Dan is very, very good at the counterpoint to the, the image, you know. So if you have something going on, he'll do something very beautiful. What, what my intention was, I didn't want to do like what you would do for a normal theatrical feature where you would assemble your visual material to temp tracks and then cut to those. I, I wanted the music and the sound to grow at the same time. And because visual material is coming out so slowly, there's really no point in that. I wasn't going to take 12 years to do the whole thing and then dump it on Dan and Richard. So we all built the, the thing together. We would take, uh, say, Dan's first 10 or 12 minutes, or right in the beginning, his first three minutes. And editor uh, Ken Rogers and I would just chop it up and then fill in as this, the score developed, you know, at, at more and more and more original music. Uh, I want to thank you very much for taking some time to talk about this film and for making something that doesn't fit into any category. <laughs> yeah, apparently not. Okay, bye-bye. That was Phil Tippett talking about his film Mad God. More bold visionary work is on display in Neptune Frost. Once upon a time, tango yakala, once upon a time, tango yakala, chira-chan is a mani-san, chira-chan is a mani-san. Directed by poet Saul Williams and Rwandan filmmaker Anisia Uziman, Neptune Frost is billed as an Afrofuturist musical. It's also a cinematic poem that provides a radically different and visually stunning window on the black experience. I saw the film during Virtual Sundance and was dazzled by both its seductive style and rich thematic layers. But as with Mad God, it's a film that's difficult to describe. So I asked Williams and Uziman to offer their descriptions. Neptune Frost is a love story. It's a story of two people who meet in a dream before they meet in real life. One of these people is a Colton miner, and one of these people is a runaway. And the story tells the story of how each of them steps into their power when they encounter a mysterious force that brings out, I'd say, the best in them. That's very vague, but that is also the truth. <laughs> but in terms of genre, it's a science fiction musical that has been shot in Rwanda with an entirely Rwandan and Burundian cast and crew. We follow the journey of many people. It's a layered story where you follow the journey of those people towards a magical place where they feel safe and because they feel safe step into their own power the rest is born from there it's a coming of age story now not everyone is familiar with afrofuturism although they may think they are after black panther <laughs> but what role does that play in this film and and what can you t say about afrofuturism that might help people maybe understand that context well you know i would say that the term afrofuturism as it's commonly used right now, has been a helpful tool for people to kind of learn how to articulate what they're experiencing when they are experiencing a film that is projecting, 
you know, ideas of a Black experience that is not necessarily related to the oppressive or colonial or imperialistic past. On the other hand, I would say that Anisia and I, in conceptualizing this project, never thought in terms of, oh, we want to make an Afrofuturist project or what have you. We are fans of science fiction. Of Sun Ra. Of Sun Ra, of Octavia you know, Butler. Of and, comics, comic and, books, yeah. and all of those things. But yeah, it is. A, I think it's more so a terms that helps people situating the film. The film is really more a science fiction and a musical, which is already something um, yeah. noted. Yeah, and I think it's in in our approach. We're also peeling back sort of the the typical approach to science fiction. I say typical because many may not think of it in this way, but I have. My entire experience, for example, with, say, the Star Wars series has been in acknowledging that, like, I find it strange that when white people imagine this realm of higher intelligence in space, the main fear seems to be centered around the idea that some alien is going to come and colonize and or enslave them. It does. It, it seems more like a projection of like, will the things that our ancestors have played a role in come back and haunt us one day than an actual liberation of the imagination? You know, like if it's higher intelligence, then why is it violent? Has always been my question. If it's higher intelligence, then why is it violent? And so we approach some of these questions in Neptune Frost. Neptune Frost takes place in a village that is called Digitaria. And it's a village that we actually built, uh, you know, as part of our production sign to, to make this film. It's a village made of recycled computer parts. <laughs> Anisi and I started conceptualizing this film around the time that we learned about the phenomenon of e-waste camps, which are places where our tech goes to dive and you turn in that old iPhone or laptop or what have you, there are village-sized camps, many of them on the continent of Africa, where you'll see piles of motherboards, piles of keyboards, piles of towers for scavenger culture that could come in and bring out, you know, take out the, the, the gold or the copper or the titanium and recycle and what have you. And then there's movements surrounding uh, that recycling and the upcycling of materials. And those camps are oftentimes, in fact, always very closely tied to the mines where that our tech is dependent on in order to make the smartphones, the, the, the laptops, the drones, the gaming devices where the Colton and Tantalum and all these things come from. Those e-waste camps are usually closely situated to those mines. And so our story tells the, you know, tells the story of a miner we follow a particular miner out of the mines and into this, this dreamlike encounter with our other protagonist, Neptune. But it is a question surrounding technology. It's a question surrounding the modern or the irony surrounding the fact that so much of our relationship to technology and the digital age is still so heavily based on a very analog form of exploitation. It's also connecting the ancient technology like the drum, which was a wireless form of communication transmitted through coding, which is drum patterns, right? To the modern forms of coding, 
and wireless communication. We aim to make those connections in the film. Yeah, it is a way of saying we are present in every layer of time. Every layer of time, our presence is felt, our presence is powerful. And in fact, we are the technology. And how did you two work together co-directing or creating this, this piece of film? Organically. I would say organically, we don't have the same set of skills, <laughs> but we inspire each other in our, you know, perspectives, a lot of discussions and exchanges and influences that are fluidity between yeah. our... Um, the disciplines we share and, and the things we yearn to see, yeah. you know, like, so uh, I might be writing the music for the film. The film is a musical, but that music inspires Anisia as she conceptualizes the visual. Yeah, and so back and forth and back and forth and also very deep research and sharing those new tools and those new thoughts, etc. And so at the end, it, it, it merges towards one vision. Yeah. And the film combines so many different kinds of visual elements and styles. How did you approach filming it and and deciding exactly kind of like which cinematic language to use with each of the different sections? Well, for me, it is the invention of a language that is cohesive to me, which depicts a kind of surreality in an ordinary world, right? So it is ethereal, but it's in the same time epic. And I thought that we could oscillate between intimacy and a, a, a more choreographed and um, large uh, scope of uh, framing. So it's really the story and the music that led the, the it, and it's a, it is a journey. So you are working with people that are going through a very important journey. And it's a coming of age journey for, for each of the characters in the film. And so that journey is, is made up of many things, <laughs> like any journey, I guess. And the film is very poetic. And Saul, you are a poet with mostly words, but how do you kind of get this sense of visual poetry so that it really does have this kind of, it, there are moments that are absolutely like transcendent in the film. That's another question for Anisia. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I don't think that it's related to the fact that we work together. When we, we say it's organic, it's 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 uh, fluid. It's really about that that we are inspired and impacted by each other's understanding of each other, and we are also merging like our history, our aesthetics, and so to me, poetry or music are very exciting to film because I do think that color is poetry too. I do think that a movement is a dance, a camera movement is a dance. And so to have the opportunity to have those elements merging, right? Those encounters, it's really just like adding on, adding on the possibilities. Yeah, it's inevitable. I mean, I've always thought of poetry as a viable alt alternative fuel source, that it is there 
to inspire and that the heightening of language or the assembling or disassembling of language is there to illuminate ideas and possibilities already hidden in the language. And of course, there's a great deal of playfulness and translation in the film in both a literal and an ethereal sense in that the film was originally written in English. The dialogue has a poetry to it and what have you. But then when we when we began working uh, with, with poets and, and, and writers and musicians in Rwanda to translate the text and the, and the song lyrics, into their language, into a way where they would be most at ease and, and most present when, when those words came through their mouth, which meant that we were translating this text now into Kinyaranda, Kirundi, Swahili, French, all the languages that the film is in, because over there, it's very common for a person to speak five languages easily um, and not you know, traveling from one neighborhood to the next, but together. Um, you know, sitting at a table and saying whatever expression works best in whatever language and, and everybody understands, except for me, the American dude who's like, <laughs> like, this is awesome. Wow. And we wanted the film to reflect that experience as well. The poetry of the film, and I believe that the images are, is, is also the, the poetry of the film. It's a synergistic union. It was also very inspired, you know, like uh, at one point in one of the songs, it says red and purple light. I mean, it may be poetry, but it's also very concrete, very real. And what do you do with that? How do you push it in, in order to convey the story? Because at the end of the day, it's how you convey the arc of, of a story, right? And so a lot of elements can be entering the frame. For instance, the mind with you know, the voiceover at the very beginning, which is like very poetic on a situation that is more violent than anything else. And we thought that to create a palette, a mineral palette to that sequence, you know, would translate the two things that are happening at the same time, which is that you, you present the characters and you want the people to, to feel them and to be attached to, to start a relationship with those characters in the same times you are telling a story that is not so easy. So if you push it, I don't know if it is poetry or if it is more like, how do we use what we have to convey a story? There are many things in the film that are universal, but are there some political or social realities about where you shot in Rwanda that American audiences might benefit from knowing? Um, I don't think there is anything that people don't know. The, the reality of the mining situation in the region is, um, you know, um, real. I think there is a lot of things that are very real in the film, but that that are um, just exposed from our point of view, which is um, not sensationalized and not, you know, um, it's not a documentary at all. Yeah, at all. I think the main thing, you know, which is not particular to Rwanda or Burundi, is more particular to the, the, the state of the world is that I don't think the Western world is fully aware of what their technology relies on and what it has always relied on. I don't think that the West, and it's not just technology, right? You know, it's, 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 it's all of the things that we take for granted that we never question, you know, or just at the beginning of questioning, you know, how they arrived here. When we think of the, the history of, of rubber, 
on our tires for our cars and of our bikes. And if you look at the history of, of, of Firestone and, 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 and rubber sourcing, it's horrendous on indigenous communities and populations, entire genocides enacted for the sake of rubber. And these same stories hold true for gold, for diamonds, for chocolate, for sugar, uranium. for uranium, for cobalt, for, you know, the, the, the list goes on, not to mention for free labor, for the, you know, the, the enslavement of peoples, and it's all sourced from the same place. And so to see a story that is celebrating Black skin and Black joy, while also, you know, dancing through our relationship to technology and bringing, you know, showing this sense of, of power that our characters are stepping into, I think can be a divine illumination for any Western viewer. But it's not about Rwanda and it's not about Burundi. It is about the viewer. And it is about those people. It is also a portrait of a magnetic youth that are all artists and beautiful presence and vibrant uh, community, community that put their heart and soul into the film. And I think it's also, that is also a reality. I think that, that we wanted to portray conversations that are really happening. Those conversations are global, but they are also, they belong also to that place. And so it was, uh, it was, uh, it, it is a way of, I think, of entering very contemporary modern dialogues with young people from Rwanda, Burundi. And kind yeah. of recentering, recentering that discussion, because, you know, like even when we talk, talk about, let's say, ecology, I mean, we're talking you from to you from California, like you're in California as well, you know, and and we know that the indigenous populations here actually participated in a burning of the forests periodically through time because they knew how the land worked and operated and in respect of the land, they knew what to do. And the governments of the state has refused to do so. And as a result, we see, you know, this, this non-selective burning of the land. What I'm pointing to is the fact that indigenous cultures have always had a strong relationship to ecology, right? We've always had this strong relationship to recycling, to, 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 to zero waste. And so the ingenuity in the film, the way in which things that have been thrown away have been turned into things that are useful is a great part of the story in the same way that people that have been made invisible are making themselves visible. In the same ways that we don't see ourselves as miserable. We don't see ourselves as invisible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it is a way to invite uh, everybody to acknowledge that. And to see us perhaps more closely aligned with how we see ourselves. And I think that is reason enough for anyone in the West to say, I want to see this film. Well, they should see it also just because it's brilliant. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for talking about Neptune Frost. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. That was Saul Williams and Anicia Uziman talking about Neptune Frost. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode of Cinema Junkie, dedicated to bold visionaries. 
Neptune Frost and Mad God are the kinds of films that just make me giddy with excitement about the potential of cinema. While Cinema Junkie is on a season break, please check out the show archives for more interviews. And if you enjoy what you hear, please leave a review. Till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie.